0: As has been mentioned already and mentioned numerous times throughout this brief deviation, not deviation from our study in the, uh, this, uh, this letter to the church at Corinth, we live in a world in which the subject of divorce is often misunderstood, even in the church, but often is used, the, the act of divorce is often used in, ma- in ways that are often frivolous. There are often ways in which they are not in concert with what the Word of God plainly teaches. As a result of that, uh, we see and we are witnessing uh, the, the destruction, the, the 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 tearing apart and tearing aside of the one of the foundational uh, elements of society, and that is the family. I don't have the statistics in front of me. I should have looked them up, but I know that there is a, a number of children just in our own country that are growing up without a father a number of children that are growing up without a mother, families who have been separated, destroyed because of one thing or another too often because of reasons not highlighted by the Word of God. And as such, we are reaping the consequences of not hearing from the God who made us. Paul's sensitive to this fact. He understands that it's not really unique to the 21st century. Sinners sin, that's what they do. And the problem is at Corinth, as it is here, as it is in our world today. The issue of the destruction of the home through the unnecessary divorce that comes in homes is really, the, 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 the consequences are really immeasurable. But I think we see them. But we must remember, as redeemed people, and as I've labored to say more than once, With all of the gentleness and kindness that I know how to give from my own heart, insofar as the Lord knows my heart, these matters are not offered to hurt. I know some of you have been divorced. I've spoken with some of you. I know the reasons of some of them. And as I've said before and I say again, I do not want you leaving this place in despair or despondent, or struggling, or even guilt-ridden. I want you to see that even in this, just like Paul extends to the church at Corinth as he extends in every situation, Christ is there, He is yours, He belongs to you, you must hold on to Him, you look to Him. There is forgiveness in Christ for every sin. Paul here deals with the hardest of the two issues related to the subject of divorce. You've already noted, of course, that the words of Christ over two sermons, first highlighting the, 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 the centrality of the family, the marriage, the, the God's perfect design for His creatures and the command that He give that What he has put together, no man should separate. Maybe you've never thought about that as you look at your spouse sitting in the same pew. Some of you not sitting next to each other. I don't know if that means anything. I never get to sit next to my well, never. A few times a year. It's always nice. But anyway, when you look at your spouse, do you know, do you realize that that was the person God chose from you in eternity past? He puts you there together. We notice this from Mark chapter 10. Then we begin to deal with the question of the hardness of man's hearts and the recognition that God, through an act really of kindness and mercy, uh, permits, doesn't command divorce for reasons of sexual immorality. And Jesus highlights that briefly for us in Matthew chapter 5 as well as other places. But there is another issue, and Paul addresses it here. It's that issue that we know from our confession of faith in chapter 24, that final paragraph, this issue of such willful desertion and all of the elements that surround it and how he highlights it really in a very positive way, although it's a very difficult negative subject. Now, as I've already said and going to say it again, and I might say it even again, I am not going to address, nor will I be able to address, every possible contingency upon which willful desertion may be in view. They're just too numerous, frankly, and too complicated to really articulate from the pulpit. This is not the place for it. That might be good for a Sunday school class. It might be good for a, a breakout lecture on the family and the home. It might be good for other places not convinced this is the place, unless you want me to preach about 1,406 sermons on what willful desertion is. I say all that because the subject is complicated. It is so complicated that your own denomination recognized this many years ago, recognized the question is one of great difficulty. And what exactly is meant by the confessional language that is taken right from 1 Corinthians 7 as to what willful desertion actually means and what constitutes such willful desertion. They recognize the hardship of it, the difficulty of it, and seeking to give wisdom to the churches. They, as a denomination, erected and appointed a committee to study the matter in depth, to work through the exegesis, the theology, the historical theology, the biblical theology, the whole thing. I've read the paper It's extensive, it's long. I also know some of the men that were on there, solid exegetes, strong men of the faith. And they themselves admit and acknowledge that this is the one area, unlike the one Jesus talks about, which is difficult, yes, but not quite as difficult as this one. Recognizing that we need great wisdom if we're going to rightly understand the mind of God when it comes to the words that Paul uses in this passage. The context here, as Paul gives it to us, really he highlights for us two distinct groups of people. In verses 10 through 11, presuppose that the spouses are married, but in verses 12 through 15, we have a difference. Yes, they're married. Hence the title of the sermon, Marital Matters Part 3, But this marriage is unusual. Either one spouse is an unbeliever or one spouse chooses to leave, desert, walk away. Unlike the comments Jesus makes, now Paul addresses this, what is indeed a real issue in the church and apparently was happening there at Corinth as well so, with God's help this morning, and believe me, I know the need of it. I, I think of that every time I preach, of course, as you know, but th- this passage especially. I'm going to show you Paul's instructions for marriage. Not exhaustive. He doesn't say everything there is to say. He admits it himself that he's not saying everything there is to say. But he does say something about marriages, particularly marriages that are of a mixed kind, that is to say one believer, one person not a believer. And what do we do in situations in which someone decides to leave for other than biblical reasons? Two points as we consider these two groups of people, and that's basically how the outline is developed. It's first the instruction to believing spouses, It's not a great deal there. It's enough, though, however, to address. Then second, the instruction to a spouse married to an unbeliever. Two points, the instruction to believing spouses, and then the instruction to a spouse married to an unbeliever. Let's first consider this instruction that we've already heard. And by way of reminder, Paul tells us there in verse 10, to the married I give this charge. In the charge that he's going to give, he highlights, he says, not I, but the Lord. In other words, he summarizes that which the Lord has already said. He doesn't go into great detail. He doesn't go into great length. He doesn't need to do that. That is not his purpose. But it was ours over the last two weeks to really examine what is it that Paul means when the Lord says, not him, and what did the Lord say. And what did he say? Just by way of reminder. Well, he said in Mark chapter 10, that marriage is good. It's ordained of God. God loves marriage. But, permitted divorce for certain reasons. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, we noted that divorce is not to happen except on the grounds of sexual immorality or sexual fornication. There's no sense in belaboring that was covered last week. If you don't remember, go back and review it. In itself, it's difficult at times to articulate exactly the points that Paul is make, that Jesus is making there because of the use of the term that is employed by the savior, which really is an umbrella term that covers all acts of sexual immorality. Again, when it comes to this subject, a great deal of wisdom must be given. But now Paul, he turns, he says as much in, there in verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Paul is going to now give his exhortation into the matter of marriage and the matter of divorce to benefit, to hopefully help, and to strengthen the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing he says to the husband and wife is to do not divorce your spouse. It's pretty simple. He doesn't say really anything that Jesus hasn't already said. He simply says that they should not divorce. Regardless of the situation, whether they're an unbeliever or an unbeliever, divorce should not be on the table. Divorce should not be a matter of discussion. Divorce is not present. It's not something we deal with. Don't do it. But he goes on to say that if you do or if divorce does occur, that is to say if you are divorced, For other than biblical reasons, as we've seen already from the words of Christ, and we will see here in a few minutes from the words of Paul, then you are to remain unmarried. Paul isn't suggesting this line of thought. It is an imperative. He is commanding this, other than for the reasons that are biblically allowed or even permitted, if in fact... Divorce has occurred or is occurring, will occur. You must understand going into it before you get into it. And it's something that I would tell you candidly that if you persist in this unbiblically, you understand that you are tying yourself to singleness the rest of your life. So he says, Don't get divorced. It's not a matter of discussion. We're not going down that road. We're not using that word in arguments and fights and battles in the home. But if it does occur or if it has to occur, and again, he's not permitting it, then you must must remain unmarried. That is to say, any divorce that happens for other than biblical grounds. What does he would prefer? What would he want instead of that? Well, he highlights it for us. He wants reconciliation. Now, look, you put enough sinners in the same house and you're bound to have problems. You unite two sinners together from very different points of view in life and upbringing and everything else, you're bound to have struggles. And sometimes those struggles are real and difficult and hard to work through. But Paul said, You need to be at peace. That's how he concludes the text. Driving, driving him in that direction, but you can't have peace without reconciliation. Reconciliation is more important. If the divorce is for other than biblical grounds, the command is to reconcile with the husband, the wife, with the husband, the husband, with the wife. I know of a man who took this so seriously, sometimes to the point where I, I don't know, sinfully so, thought, things but I don't know I wondered I don't remember how many years it was my wife can probably tell you we went to church with this man for my entire seminary life he and his wife were estranged he would not remarry he refused he waited he prayed he kept working and hoping and trusting and to be reconciled with his wife. And I think that happened. I think it did. I'm getting the nod of yes. So you could take that, I guess, to the bank. But that's what Paul would desire. There are cases in the church in which a husband and wife may need to separate for a season. Some of you may not like that comment. What is a pastor to do or an elders to do if a husband and wife are at blows with each other? I mean physically. When the husband comes home from work every day and regularly pummels his wife into the ground, don't think that doesn't happen. It happens. Should a pastor and elders tell the wife that she has to stay in the home? I don't think the Lord would say that, but there's a huge difference between safeguarding the well-being of the wife or, in some cases, the husband, because it does happen to them too, and advocating divorce. Reconciliation is the goal. Punitive work probably needs to happen in that particular case, but there's so many other cases that I don't have time or luxury to even get into every one of them. I say that one because that's usually gone the forefront of most people's thinking. What would you tell a woman? Paul says, you should be stay married. You're supposed to remain with each other, be reconciled. This situation is pretty awful. Great wisdom and therefore is needed. This command that Paul gives here to be reconciled, it may be very difficult to obey. Nobody's downplaying that either. The truth of the matter is that reconciliation with a difficult husband or spouse is a, a husband or wife can be difficult. Obedience is not always easy, especially, especially for fallen creatures and especially in a situation so laden and so, so full of emotion. But that doesn't change the fact that Paul's desire is that there is reconciliation between the husband and wife. Now, why would he even go there? Why, why is that his desire? Because that's precisely what happened to you. You were the abuser. Weren't you? You? You are the one who offended a holy God. You're the one who broke his laws. He was, he was nothing but good to you and kind to you and give to you your daily bread, even as an unregenerate person, a, a job and a family and, and, and enough money to pay your bills and, and a home to live in and, and on and on it goes. That all came from God. But if that's not enough, then what does he do? Uh, Well, even more than that, the greatest thing he could have done, he reconciles reconciles himself to you. What does he do? He sues for peace with you. It may have been difficult, but he does it. You're the abuser. He still, what, saves you. The doctrine of reconciliation is deep. But I think we can simply say that it's a doctrine that articulates... The work of God for us that we mirror it then therefore in that relationship we have is that living model and example of Christ and his church. But. There's always a but, right? Yes, because we're fallen creatures. That's why there's a but. There may be circumstances in which it's simply not possible The hardness of our hearts, the lack of humility, the severity of the infraction, I don't know. I haven't dealt with many divorce cases in the church, so I can't speak from my own experience. I can only speak from the experience of others who have taught me and guided me. But I do know that in cases of sexual immorality, reconciliation can be near impossible to overcome. That issue could be near impossible to overcome. In cases of such willful desertion, it could be so hard, so impossible to overcome, then it would be better not to be together and be at peace than to continue. There are some practical insights in the words that Paul uses here in this first point, the instruction to believing spouses. Paul presents the instruction in the form of command and appeals the authority of Christ. This is not because Paul's words lack authority. And I've actually heard that from people. People who I thought believed the Bible is the Word of God, the whole Bible from cover to cover, all 66 canonical books, every jot and tittle. Never quite could, un- could reconcile that comment. No, Paul's words here are just as authoritative as the words of Christ. They're not less authoritative. It's not what he means when he says, and I say not the Lord. He's simply saying that I'm saying something to you the Lord did never said. Second, Paul is acknowledging that improper divorces sometimes happen. Duh. I mean, he's a realist. He he knows the world he lives in. It was happening at Corinth. It happens here. They happen. He acknowledges that improper divorces sometimes happen. In other words, this section may be translated as if for any reason this condition may possibly occur. Paul is not giving third, not giving a right to divorce, just like Jesus wasn't. He's not saying necessarily you have to. Because I have an unbelieving spouse, I should just go ahead and kick them out uh, Because they don't think like I do, act like I do They don't have the same worldview I do They run contrary to what I, how I want to raise my children And on and on it goes, the list is endless Well, it's not endless, but it's, it's a long list He's not saying that, he said and says He says, if they consent to live with you, then live together Stay married Paul's not giving a command to divorce, but if it does happen, the husband or wife are not to use this opportunity to marry someone else. That is to say, for reasons other than what the Bible allows. Paul is acknowledging that in certain cases, however, reconciliation, though the goal, the desire, always is that it is simply not a possibility. Now, some practical considerations. Buckle up. Okay, maybe not so much. You may not notice, I'm doing the best I can to measure everything I say. Some practical consideration. Much has been made regarding the two terms Paul uses in these two verses, in verses 10 and 11. Much has been made. What does he say? Well, he says, "...to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord the wife should not separate from her husband." And then immediately shifts gears, as it were, and at the end of that verse, at the end of verse 11, he says, not divorce his wife. Much has been made out of this point. These two terms that he employs, in verse 10, the term is translated by the ESV as separate, but in verse 11, the term is used as translated by the ESV as "divorced." These two terms should not be interpreted in the light of the modern-day notion of separation. That is an invention that has been made by the civil magistrate, probably for the sake of harm, danger. Then it's been abused, as we are wont to do, and now we separate for every Tom Dick and Harry thing that comes along. I won't say it. You know, the toothpaste thing. Okay, I'm not going to say it. This is not what Paul has in mind in these verses. The main idea is divorce is a breaking of the one Flesh relationship is the best intention for marriage. He's just using a different word, but he's conveying the same idea. He's not talking about two separate things, and that wasn't a pun. Third, separation or a halfway house relationship is foreign to the Bible. Does this mean it can never happen, however? The goal is reconciliation. If the goal is driving the couple towards reconciliation in those most volatile of difficulties and situations, then there may be wisdom to removing or asking for a party to remove themselves from the normal living arrangement. As such, then we can deal adequately with the sin or the sins that have brought the marriage to this place in the first place. Obviously, one of them has already been mentioned, and that is in the case in which a life is in danger. But God is certainly not going to pit His commands against one another. the Word of God could be not more plain. It's more plain than what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And what is required by that? Well, the safeguard and protection of life. And there may be a time in which wisdom dictates The local church, by virtue of the session of the church, seeks to prevent further damage to one spouse or the other. But even in those cases, Paul is not saying divorce, he is saying work for reconciliation. The goal is always that. The goal is always that. And this is why it is so important, because the complexity of it, it is important that the local church adjudicates marriages that are in jeopardy. Our confession is clear on this. It could not be more clear. recognizing even in the 1600s the complexity of this particular matter when it tells us that the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage. What does that mean? That means we're good at this. You're good at this. My wife burnt the toast. I'm divorcing her. My wife, I'm not going to say it. Came home late, I'm divorcing her. She didn't come home early enough, I'm divorcing. Pick something. Man comes up with all kinds of reasons to unduly study arguments that they might put asunder that which God himself has joined together. I got tired of them. We have irreconcilable differences. Um, Pick something. Anything. Anything. But it goes on to say, but yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church. What are they saying? There are times, they're saying, in which one of these two issues are not fixable, they're not a remedy. It's not there. And at some point, something has to be done. So a way it can be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of Marriage. You might think, well, why is the civil magistrate involved? Well, because marriage is not just an act of God, it's also an act of the state. Who's going to take care of the marital assets and the financial areas of of your marriage? That's not the church's job. Leave that to the guys you pay a lot of money to, you know, the ones that should be, you know, how many, what's a thousand lawyers at the bottom of the sea, a good start, you know, them. Give it to them. Some states have remedial programs for marriages that are in jeopardy, requiring them to meet with someone for a year before they can actually get a divorce, even if the divorce is unbiblical. All I'm saying is that the civil magistrate is not out of view. God gave us the civil magistrate for matters of financial and stewardship and the assets and who's getting what and all of it. That is not the church's job. But the church is involved. Notice what it says: "Wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned." Who's that? Well, that's the husband and wife that don't seem to know how to get along, or there's some clear adultery, or immorality, or there's such willful desertion. What is that? Okay, you're not left to your own devices. That is to say, you're too close to the issue. You should not be rendering judgments in this matter on your own. You need to seek the wisdom of the church, as to say, the elders of the church. And that's why, wisely, they put this in here, that the person's concerned in it, not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. I know of situations in churches in which members got divorced. They didn't consult with their elders. They never spoke with them. i got to tell you, I'll just leave it like this without giving you all the details. It didn't sit over, didn't sit well with their elders. Why? First, they saw a marriage fall apart in front of them. They weren't asked or consulted to help them in their situation. Breaks their heart. You shouldn't be left to your own devices. You need to seek the help of God-ordained men in the church who have this responsibility to evaluate the situation, whether it's such willful desertions or adultery or immorality, and say to you, in all the kindness and love that they can muster, you do not have grounds for divorce, but we will work with you to follow what Paul tells us to do, that you might be reconciled to your husband, your husband to the wife. But what do you do in cases where people are married and they're that's all fine and good for two Christians who ought to be zealous to do what the Word of God says. What do you do about a person who's not married to a Christian? You know, it kind of changes the worldview somewhat. What do they care, the unbeliever, what the church says? I don't have any authority over them. They don't have to submit to anything I say. Why should they care what I tell them? Well, Paul gives instructions to this mixed situation. The circumstance, of course, is a mixed marriage. Defined, it's one where a spouse is married to an unbeliever. Maybe you've been in that kind of marriage. Maybe you're in that one now. I know many people who have. I went to school. I had a teacher who was. Husband was not a believer. Paul would say, you don't divorce them because they're not a Christian. That's not one of the grounds. When there's a spouse that's married to an unbeliever, Paul gives clear instruction. They're, they are both unbelievers first, maybe when they get married. This happens. Both of you were unbelievers when you came to, uh, got married, you took vows, you're united. God puts you together, whether you acknowledge that or not that day. And then one of you comes to faith in Christ. The other one does not. It happens. What should we do? Well, kick them out, of course. No, Paul would say, no, 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 don't do that. What about the case in which either the man or the woman is a believer before marriage and marries unwisely an unbeliever? That's never happened. Paul addresses that later in the same chapter in verse 39. It does happen. It has happened before in which a believer marries an unbeliever unwisely, maybe ignorantly, didn't know any better. I don't know. I don't know what their pastor was doing, but it happened. Nonetheless, what do you do? They're not supposed to be unequally yoked. Well, they are. Well, Divorce, of course, that's the solution. Let's fix the sin by sinning again. No. Paul again would give a command to the Christian. He says, a Christian in such circumstances should not initiate a divorce. In the context of the Corinthian church, it seems apparent that some were doing this. The present tense prohibition in the Greek seems to indicate as much that this was actually happening. That people were coming to faith in Christ... And their spouse wasn't. And so the the zealous, holier-than-thou Christian said to the unbelieving person, you are a distraction to my godliness, so leave. It's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard, but apparently it was happening. And Paul says, stop doing that. That's the point he's making. Don't do that. They consent to live with you, then live in peace. Okay. Okay. Not a complicated issue, but apparently some were indeed doing this. Perhaps some believers are using their spouse's unbelief as an excuse for getting a divorce. Well, they're not a Christian, so I have grounds for divorce. No, you do not. Paul says, Jesus said, sexual immorality, I say willful desertion. I don't think I said anything about being an unbeliever. So that's not on the table. If they consent, he repeats himself. If they consent to live together, they should live together. Believer and unbeliever doesn't matter. Perhaps some thought that this sort of marriage somehow contaminated them, like they were unclean or something. You know, I got to tell you, you know, an unbelieving spouse is not unclean. They're just unbelievers, Later in the same passage, Paul even gives that counsel and he says, How do you know, wife, if by your godly example, living in the home and living according to the matters that Christ taught about submitting to your husband, even your unbelieving husband, you might not be the means instrument by which you bring him to faith in Christ? How do you know, husband, by the way you guide your wife as the Lord would have you? That is the sacrifice, not king, not boss. Oh, I could really go off on it. I'm not going to do that. How do you know that through that model of Christ you don't bring your wife to faith? Now I say all that to say this, and I know you're thinking it. Maybe you are. That is not license to marry unequally yoked, by the way. Well, you know, if I marry that person, they might come to faith in Christ, so I'm going to marry them as a form of evangelism, a missionary enterprise. You won't change them. Don't do it. Paul says don't. Don't. It's not a a license. He's speaking to people who are already married, and he says to them to encourage them that you might be the instrument. How do you know? Now, what reasons does he give? For this command They consent to live together They consent to be together Don't separate, don't divorce Don't go your own ways Just because one's an unbeliever All this business, he gives reasons He tells us the reasons Well first, the unbelieving spouse Is sanctified by the believing spouse You might think, what? How is that even possible? Then we kind of skip over a step what happened to justification? <laughs> it's not, he's not using the term that way. What is meant by the phrase that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse? How does this take place? Paul is not saying the spouse has a personal relationship with Christ. In this context, the apostle uses sanctified as that means whereby a person is influenced, <coughs> influenced by the claims of Christ. Now, Tell me how that can't happen. A godly wife is married to an unbelieving husband. She's living, seeking to live faithfully before the Lord. How is it that her she's not influencing him? She is. He might not admit it, because most men are dunderheads. But it's happening. It's the idea that he uses here. Scripture uses the term sanctify in at least four different senses. To set things aside for sacred function, to consecrate by baptism, a Christian marriage, or atonement for sin. The believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving husband. The believing wife sanctifies the unbelieving husband. One commentator puts it this way, as much as the temple sanctified the gold connected with it, or the altar the gift laid upon it. The altar sanctified what was put on it. This is the idea that Paul has in mind. He is not talking about the doctrine of sanctification. He's not talking about the idea by which you, as a justified Christian, now are walking the life of the Christian and is being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. He's talking about the influence that will come necessarily by you remaining married to the unbeliever. So we have to be careful. We don't read too much into this passage. Some have done that. There's a warning, first warning do not read too much into this. The powerful penetration of the gospel in the life of the one spouse may lead the other to the Savior, but it may lead them to Christ. But it may not either. The unbelieving spouse is now in a privileged circumstance, much like covenant children in the church who are holy. As Paul says here in this passage, they are holy. Why? Because, they, because they've been united to Christ? Because, they, because they've been justified in their sin? Because they've made a public profession of faith? No! It's because they are privileged. They are in a privileged place in the church. He uses this to strengthen his whole entire argument that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified in a privileged relationship, a unique situation of which many are not. You children here in this room, I know you don't like coming to church every Sunday. Maybe you're bored But you are in a privileged place. Why? Because you get to hear the hope of the gospel. You get to hear about Christ. You get to see the sacraments. You get to hear of things that the people out there running around playing football in their backyard right now don't get to hear. In the same way, the unbelieving husband is getting the same thing from his wife or the wife from the husband. are in a privileged circumstance that did not exist prior to the salvation of the wife or the husband the constant pressure of a holy life before the unbelievers a powerful tool in the hands of the spirits what is it McShane said what is it that the people of God need more a holy minister not longer preaching and he wasn't known for that by the way don't get excited (laughs) he was known for his brevity powerful preacher he didn't mention that. A holy life is a powerful influence upon people. A holy wife, a holy husband can be a powerful sanctifying element in the life of an unbelieving spouse. Second warning this is not Paul's silent permission, and I've already mentioned this one and got ahead of myself, but this is not Paul's silent permission for believers to marry unbelievers. Elsewhere, Paul forbids this outright. Too often, Christians get it in their head that, if, that they will change their spouse if they get married. That is foolish. You will not do that, and I could go on and on on that point. Well, my husband's a turkey. Was he, wanted, was he a turkey before you got married? Well, yeah, but, you know, uh, okay. Did you really think he was going to change? My wife, look, who they are before you got married is who they're going to be after you get married, Okay. Young people, get it through your head right now. You're not going to change them. So this is not a tacit permission, a silent permission to marry unbelievers. Otherwise, he would just come right out and say it. He's speaking to people who are married. The benefit, of course, is that even their children, which usually shows up in marriage, every man wakes up one fine morning with with kids, it happens. You get married, kids show up. It's the normal order of things. The children are even set apart as holy. Paul uses a different term here. The explanation of this is that he roots it very much in the covenant establishment that it was given in Genesis chapter 17. The root is holy. That is to say, one or both believing parents. The root is holy, the branches are holy. The children, therefore, are the branches. Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 11. I'm speeding along because I'm getting long. The implications of this is that a Christian mother or father may claim the covenant promises for his or her children, his or her children regardless of the spiritual state of the other's spouse. That is to say, Paul is mindful of the state of the church now, therefore. Think of Timothy, his mother, Eunice, her grandmother. Okay, I can't remember. You know who they are. It's one of the reasons why we baptize children of one or both believing parents. But there is an exception. There always is. This is the exception you've been waiting the whole sermon to hear. What about those that decide to leave? What do we do? Maybe they're a believer. Maybe they're not. But they do what we have coined. The confession is coined. Such willful desertion. Notice first that it's initiated by the unbelieving spouse. Paul could not be more plain on that point. They desire to leave. If they desire to walk away, you can kick them out. You're having problems in your marriage, you can kick them out. You're looking for reconciliation. You're seeking reconciliation. That's the umbrella that drives everything. But they want to leave. They don't want to perform the duties of a husband or the duties of a wife. They don't want to provide for their family. They they want to go. They want to desert the relationship. Well, in that case, the believing spouse is not bound. And again, I'm not going to lay out all the different ways in which willful desertion comes into play here because it just wouldn't be appropriate or even do I have the time. But the believing spouse is not bound in these matters. Verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. See how he does a difference? The unbeliever and the brother or sister. Believe me, spouse is not bound in these matters. It's an allusion to enslavement. Literally, a brother or sister is not enslaved. That's the literal rendering there. You might think, boy, he was right about that. My marriage is like slavery. I hope it's not. And that's not what he's saying about Marriage. He's just using a word, a bondservant term, a union. You're no longer bound anymore. That is to say, you can behave as such that they were dead to you. What does that mean then, therefore? That means then you're free to remarry. The believer is not bound to that union. The unbeliever is the one who broke it. In such cases of desertion, I'll give you some examples of what could be considered desertion. I am not saying from the pulpit that they are. So hear me clearly. And it's being recorded anyway, so I'll just play it back for you if you challenge it. But it could be. This is why it's so difficult. When a husband refuses to work, will or won't work, and the family is starving because of his laziness. Perhaps in that case, it could be such willful desertion. Clearly, immorality is grounds, abuse, matters of abuse. This is why it's so vitally important That in cases of marriage that you find yourself in these situations, it is important, it is vital, it is necessary I cannot say this strongly enough, it is necessary for you to seek the help of your pastor and elders. They may not tell you what you want to hear, but they will tell you what God wants you to hear. Because it's that complicated. And so, in conclusion, and yes, there's always a conclusion to every sermon, even if it seems to take forever to get there, Paul reminds God's people, I'm going to just summarize. Christians are not to divorce. That's it. Don't. Oh, I had to say that word. For those of you who watch the news, okay. It's not on the table. For those of you who are not married today, and that's many of you, don't go into your marriage with the idea that you've got this out clause in your back pocket somewhere and that you can just play it whenever you think you need to. If that's your attitude, don't get married. Don't. It's not on the table. Doesn't come up in discussion. It doesn't come up in arguments. You don't use it as a a battering ram against your spouse. I'm gonna divorce you, you. No, uh-uh, you don't say it. But because of the hardness of our hearts, as we've seen from these last three sermons, if divorce is necessary, it has to happen under the grounds of sexual immorality or such willful desertion with the guidance and direction of the session of the church to help you through what is indeed a very complicated and emotionally ridden issue. But if divorce is necessary, if it does occur for other reasons, which is to say sinful ones, remember there's forgiveness, then you are to remain unmarried and pursue reconciliation. You might think you're crazy. I'm not reconciling with that turkey. Well, that's what Paul said you should do. Reconciliation, of course, is not always possible due to the hardness of man's heart. Thus, all matters of marital strife between at least one member should be adjudicated by the church, pastors and elders. Not the membership. Sorry, they're not ordained to that task. Sorry to say it. It's just not true. There's a purpose and reason for Ordination. There's many purposes and reasons (laughs) the thought that went through Never mind All matters of marital strife The last thing I want to see In this congregation is divorce I understand that it might have to happen There may be cases I pray it doesn't That's why I pray for your marriages every single day Why? Because I don't want the enemy to Take away that which God has put together That's why You're struggling, I've said this before, I'll say it again If you're having a problem in your marriage, you need to come see me You try to go it alone and it's going to fall, you're going to fall right on your face I'm telling you, you are, you need to come see me You need to come see the elders We're not going to put it on a billboard, post it all over Facebook I'm not on Facebook anyway, so that's not possible It's not going on Twitter, X We'll pray with you, we'll grieve with you, we'll work with you We'll strive with you, we'll tell you hard things Current marriage to one believing, unbelieving spouse may be used by the Holy Spirit to bring them to faith and demonstrate God's covenant faithfulness to their children. God loves marriage. Much is at stake. The church, society, the world. God loves marriage. Marriage. So you, in difficult marriages, pursue reconciliation. Get help if you need it. Those of you who have been divorced in this room for other, than other reasons, other than the ones that have been highlighted in these last three sermons, well, you know what I'm going to say. There's always Christ. There is always forgiveness. You do not have to feel guilty. You look to Him. Period. Period. You're not a second-class citizen or a member of the church. You're like the rest of us, struggling in the Christian life, trying to make sense of it all at times. That's what you must do. For those of you who have marriages that are blessed, that God is blessing in many ways, you don't take the credit for it. That's the work of God. That's His grace. And you remember, as you labor side by side with your spouse for the good of your children and the glory of His kingdom and His church and society around you, that it is all of His grace. Every drop is of Him. And so you give thanks to Him for it. Amen. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and Well, this was hard and, I confess, probably not explained very well. I ask that you would be gracious to your people anyway. In spite of the weakness of the sermon and in spite of the weakness of the things explained, that you would help your people know how much you love marriage and how much you love your people, even those that have struggled with it and have hard times those who have been divorced for reasons other than what your word says, may you be merciful and gracious to them. May you help them know of your eternal love, that your love isn't determined upon their marriage state. It's determined upon your son who can never fail. May you bless the rest of us. May you help us in our marriages, some good, some bad, some in between, that you might be kind, that we might live that model of Christ and the church not only between each other, but before a watching world. Strengthen us, help us, give us wisdom, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.